0: following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, one of the books I purchased uh, to use in this study for my church is a book published by Crossway entitled Untangling Emotions. And one of the authors said this about emotions on pages 32 to 33, said, perhaps one of the most important things The Bible tells us about our emotions is that they are expressions of what we value or love, what we value or love. And if you think about that in your light of your own experience and really think about what excites you, what what makes you joyful, what makes you angry, so often, if not always, it's attached to what you value. It's showing what matters to you. Uh, For example... Say I'm walking through the living room and my wife says to me, well, Savannah, my little girl, Savannah and I are about to watch figure skating. Would you want to join us? I don't say, all right, I'll go get the popcorn. My emotional response would probably immediately be dread, thinking that I'm going to have to sit down and watch this, regret that I was walking through at the wrong place at the wrong time. And to be real Southern with you, I don't give two hoots about ice skating or who wins the competition. But now let's say it's game six, Braves versus the Astros. i start off the day and go through the day with a mixture of emotions that I talked about this morning, feelings of excitement, anticipation. I'm also feeling nervous. Will the Braves once again, you know, blow this one? Just generally happy because I enjoy watching baseball and I get to watch baseball and my favorite team, uh, America's team, is in the championship. And as soon as Soler, I believe it was, hit that first home run, I was texting Pastor Smith and Pastor Howell there in Taylor's with great joy and enthusiasm and there we went at it for a while and then all the way to the end of the game we, we stayed at least in contact toward the end there. So now if you if you think about it for a moment, I didn't plan all those emotional responses. I was not taught and sat down at five years old and said, now listen, uh, here are the appropriate emotions that you should feel, and here's the proper mixture and blend and how they should go together. I did not practice earlier that week how I was going to respond. I, I don't emotions do not work that way. The emotions that I experienced last October and how they blended together were simply natural expressions of a heart that values baseball and the Atlanta Braves, right? Now, had they blown that game, I would have had another mixture of emotions, anticipating maybe losing game seven, and that would have been a whole different experience. But again, that would have been natural expressions of what's important to me. Now, if I didn't like baseball and I didn't care about the team playing, I might turn over because I like baseball. I might see who's winning, but I really don't care that much. Furthermore, when we experience what seems to be a mixture of contradictory emotions, it's because we're valuing more than one thing at a time. There's a sense in which I might have a sense of excitement about the a figure skating because I get to spend time with my daughter and show her how much I love her because I value spending time with her. I've looked forward to this conference. I felt a measure of pleasure when invited and yet, also, there's always a little dread sometimes because you've got to prepare for it in the midst of all your other responsibilities and make sure you do a good job. I value these opportunities to be able to see my my to renew fellowship with some of you that I've known and and renew friendship, uh, my relationship with my good friends, Pastor Smith and his wife and his family. And then, of course, there's a plus in visiting South Florida in the winter time. On the other hand, I value being home. My schedule's been nuts over the last few months, and so had a death in the family, sister diagnosed with cancer, assisting another church in a crisis, the holidays, and so I'm ready to get into a rut and stay there for a while, and I feel the need to get back to my own church and to to get back into a routine and so on. So why am I having these mixtures of emotions? Because I value all of these things. And those values are mixing together. And that's why it's not, it's not good to ignore our emotions because they say so much about us. And one of the fundamental things that our emotions show about us is what we value in life and what's important. Not only when it comes to the innocent pleasures of life like baseball and hobbies and other types of innocent things, our emotional responses reveal what we value above all else, Our emotional responses reveal ultimate commitments, supreme commitments, what we are attached to in our hearts above all things. And that is why we're not taking an approach like this, five ways to cultivate Christ-like compassion. I'm not saying you can't have a sermon like that and have things that we can do and follow in scripture to help cultivate things, but, but but you can't just take that approach. Uh, certainly, you wouldn't want a sermon on how to experience the sorrow of Jesus. That'd be kind of odd, wouldn't it? May Again, maybe you could name it that and kind of help people know how to cultivate those things, or what about a counseling session where you're going to teach someone 10 steps to develop the anger of Christ? Our Lord's emotions were not pre-programmed. They were not robotic. They were not rehearsed. They were natural. Natural responses and expressions of his heart. They were expressions of what he loved and valued, his ultimate commitments. This morning we talked about the balance of our Lord's emotional life, how he experienced the right emotion at the right time, and how he would experience more than one emotion at, 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 at the same time in proper relationship to one another and into due proportion and to proper degrees. They were pure mixtures as I called them well this evening we're going to consider the fact that that balanced emotional life was an expression of pure motives pure motives that is to say they were expressions of what he valued the supreme commitments of his heart why did he experience an emotion a particular emotion in this situation because of what he valued Why did he experience a different emotion over here because of what he valued? Why did he experience a blend of sometimes what appeared to be contradictory emotions because he valued more than one thing at a time? And I want you to see that. Now, from the big picture standpoint, let me just ask this question What did Jesus value? Now, I don't want to be simplistic. I know that, for example, he valued his family. He maybe valued a fun time with his disciples when they were off at the end of the day. But looking big picture, we could say this. Jesus valued the glory and honor of God and the good of others. Jesus valued the honor and glory of God and the good of others. Or there's another way of saying that. He loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And so in many ways, his emotions came out of what he loved, what he valued. So let's break that down into two parts. First of all, consider with me that our Lord had the pure motive of valuing the glory and honor of God. And there are two passages that I want to use to demonstrate this to you. The first one that I think is of great significance is in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now, at first, this text, you may look at this text or if you're familiar with it already and you're going to think, what does this have to do with our Lord's emotional life? But my hope is that by the time we do a little survey of it, you'll be convinced that it directly relates to it. I think it's a very powerful text that gives insight into the heart of our Lord. And I need to set this up for you by explaining what's going on in the chapter as I'm sure you already know the Jewish leaders did not like Jesus very much. They didn't care for him. They hated him. But according to verse 32 and what Jesus says there, I'm not going to read it, some of them did have a kind of temporary faith in him, some of the Jews. However, before this chapter comes to a close, they evidenced the fact that their faith was not saving because they tried to stone him. And part of what led to their anger was that, They didn't appreciate the fact, they didn't appreciate him confusing them with the facts. You know, like telling them they were slaves of sin, telling them that only he could set them free, making the amazing claims that God is his father. And some of them, in response to their being offended by Jesus, they launched a verbal assault against him. For example, look at what they say to him in verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now, you say, what do they mean? Why did they say we're not born of fornication? Well, it is possible that this was an assault on Jesus' precious mama, Mary, and an assault on Jesus himself. You remember that Joseph was going to divorce Mary privately when he thought that her pregnancy was the result of fornication. Uh, he was sure that she had been unfaithful to him until the angel showed up and told him otherwise. And it's possible, therefore, that there were enough abnormalities surrounding that pregnancy that some people did the math and said, you know, maybe things don't quite add up. And they, there was some suspicion, perhaps, that Joseph wasn't his real biological daddy, And it could be that some from the earliest days, there were rumors that had spread. As rumors tend to do, they got worse. Look down at verse 48 in the midst of this conversation. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, can't be certain about this, but it is possible perhaps That As the story spread, part of the rumor was that 30 years ago a Samaritan man had come to Nazareth and and Mary and him had a rendezvous and Jesus was the result. So in just a few short breaths, these Jews insulted Jesus, perhaps by calling his mama a harlot, calling him an illegitimate child and a half-breed. Now, whether or not those texts mean those specific things, these were not compliments. You would agree with that. Okay, saying that he has a demon, saying that he's a Samaritan, they are certainly taking pot shots at Jesus, and it was not just your normal mean statements. These were very insulting, sharp jabs at Jesus Christ. So you're tracking with me, right? Now, could you make a connection as to how this might uh, be connected to the emotional life of Christ, even if their comments had nothing to do with the abnormalities of his birth and the, and the uh, origins of his birth and where he came from, these were insults that were designed to cut him and to cut him deep. Now, if that were you, would that have an impact on you emotionally? Or would you float above it unscathed? Listen, as a real man, Jesus felt those hurtful words like a dagger to his soul, just like you would. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, Proverbs twelve eighteen. Now, what if they talked about your mama like that? Would you wanna backslide for about five minutes and tell Katie to bar the door and beat the living devil out of every one of them? Would you be ready to throw down with them? Perhaps others would have a tendency to respond by sucking their thumbs in a mess of self-pity and despair. Here I've poured out my soul in ministry to these people only to be insulted and ridiculed. I am done. I am giving up the ministry. I'm going to go work for the local camel dealership and I don't want to mess with anyone else and I don't want anybody to mess with me. But it's interesting that our Lord did not respond in either of those two ways. There's no evidence of carnal anger, rage, like we saw this morning. No evidence of self pity. Rather, he gives a legitimate defense, which, by the way, is not proud and prideful to give a legitimate defense. And then he slips through their murderous fingers quietly. No evidence of anger, no evidence of self pity, no evidence of despair to these nasty personal insults, and I think that this is significant because I believe that we can find clues in this text as to why Jesus did not respond that way. Take note of two statements that Jesus made as all this was going down. Look at what he says in response to their insult, that he is a Samaritan and is demon-possessed. In verses 49 to 50, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. This is what Jesus is saying. You are dishonoring me as I am seeking to honor God. Here's what you need to know about me. I am not seeking my own glory. I'm leaving my glory in the hands of the only one who can give it to me, my Father. Now, Jesus is not saying he doesn't care that he's glorified. Obviously, he cares. He's the Son of God for crying all night. But what he is saying is that he is committed to allowing the Father to glorify him and honor him in the Father's time and in the Father's way. Look down at verses 53 and 54. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. Hang on a sec. Let me make sure I get the right reference. I'm sorry. Verse 54. I'm sorry. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. Jesus says, if I seek my glory. If I take it into my hands like you men are accustomed to doing, then all I'm going to receive is the empty, fleeting praise of men. I don't have any care for that. I don't want that kind of fleeting, worldly glory. I want the real, substantial, and lasting glory that only the Father can bestow upon me. I don't care for your glory. In fact, back in John 5, 5 he speaks of the glory that only God alone can give. Now, here's what I'm asserting in all this. The reason our Lord did not explode with carnal anger or implode with self-pity is because he valued the glory and honor of God. He sought the glory of his Father while leaving his glory and honor in the hands of the Father. The Father would vindicate him in his time and in his way. And do you realize Jesus is still waiting on that? The resurrection ascension was partial vindication. His full vindication is yet to come when he returns to this earth. And I would suggest to you that his emotional response... In this instance, the fact that we see no carnal anger, the fact that we don't see self-pity or despair is because he valued supremely the glory of God. He was after it and left his glory for God to seek. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between how Jesus responds here and what is recorded earlier in the Gospel of John back in chapter 2 take note of the emotion that was feeding and driving our lord's actions in this text as we read it verse 13 and following of john chapter 2 the passover of the jews was near and jesus went up to jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal was driving our Lord's action. Zeal has been defined as a warmth of feeling for or against something. And no doubt this was a zeal that was mixed with and feeding a righteous anger at what he saw going on in the temple. In fact, zeal can even carry the idea of jealousy. There was a holy jealousy in our Lord's heart for the purity of God's house and the temple. There was a holy jealousy in our Lord's heart for the Father's glory attached to the temple driving these actions. Now, do you see a difference between how Jesus responded in this text and how he responded in John chapter eight? In John chapter eight, when his honor and glory were more directly attacked, he left it in God's hands. But in John chapter 2, when God's honor and glory were more directly attacked, it was not more of a personal offense. He was red hot with zeal and he took care of business. Now, I realize that there are several unique factors in these situations recorded in these texts that have to do with Christ in an exclusive way. But I do believe we learn something about, the emotion, from, about emotions from our Lord in these two passages. And that is our emotional responses, whether it be anger, whether it be sorrow, whether it be joy, they often reveal whether our hearts are supremely committed to our honor and glory. Or to whether our hearts are supremely committed to God's honor and glory. While leaving our honor in his hands to seek and secure. Where does a hair trigger come from? know what a hair trigger is, right? A person with a hair trigger is one who can get angry in a split second over the smallest matter. Over the slightest personal offense or even honest mistake that another makes that affects them adversely. Where does that come from? Is it ultimately genetic? Is it simply learned from our parents? Well, whatever role our cursed bodies may have in making us more susceptible to certain sins, and I don't doubt that, whatever patterns have been set by examples of parents and others, the root issue of a hair trigger is a heart that has a supreme commitment to one's own honor and glory. How dare you speak too loudly while I'm trying to watch television? Even if you do it by accident, there's no excuse. This is my world. This is my throne. You're just a squirrel trying to get a nut. You should be so sensitive that you don't make a mistake around me. So be careful with your words. I mean, be careful how you look at me. Don't you dare pass by me and make the mistake of not saying hello. What's behind all of this kind of sensitivity, this nonsense that goes on? It's a commitment to our own honor and glory above all else. One slip and you receive my displeasure and anger. Now I know for those of us who are born again, that does not rule upon our hearts. God has dealt a death blow to the gospel on that terrible sin of our hearts. However, we must sadly confess that it still remains in our hearts and we struggle with it. Isn't it amazing and sad how much we can be opposite of what we see in our Lord in these texts? How easily and quickly we can become incensed over the smallest personal offense, nowhere near what our Lord endured. Yet, when God's name is blasphemed, And his truth lies fallen in the streets, and his church is in poor shape. Sometimes we're barely agitated. Sometimes not at all. Let's think about that for a moment. Here's a mistake we can make in evaluating ourselves. Let's take a person who rarely, almost never, gets riled up angry over personal offenses. Personal offenses usually roll off the person like water off a duck's back. They have the ability to take jabs and stabs and smile and keep walking. And that could indeed be a good sign if this person's a Christian that they've grown in grace and that their hearts are increasingly committed to the glory of God, allowing God to take care of their honor. God is my defender. However, this person is rarely grieved, if ever, and rarely angry, if ever, about anything that's not necessarily a good sign. And the mistake the person can make is to think that because I rarely ever get upset, and I can always sleep soundly, the person judges that that's great faith in God shielding their soul from disturbance. That's the peace of God ruling the heart and the joy of the Holy Ghost. When in reality, to never be disturbed or rarely disturbed is a revelation of a morally insensitive heart. If I can live in a world in which God is dishonored and never be disturbed, never be angry, never grieved, there's a lot of moral insensitivity in my soul that is not yet like my Lord. This made me think of the Apostle Paul when he went into Athens. You remember reading that text where he preached, that great, he preached in the synagogues and then he gave that great defense of the gospel and the faith on Mars Hill? You remember what happened when he walked into the city? What the scripture says there in verse 16, and he saw the city given to idolatry? The Bible says he was provoked in his spirit. Why was he provoked? He had a he was upset and it was totally legitimate in that case it was flowing out of a pure motive because he valued and he he valued the honor and glory of god so much he could not stand to see a city full of people god made not giving him glory and giving that glory to false gods And see, brethren, we also, we have to realize that on the one hand, we don't want a hair-trigger heart. On the other hand, we don't want a morally insensitive heart. How do we remedy those things? By asking God to increase in us that pure motive of valuing his honor and glory above all else. And by the way, I don't have time to get into it, but that text we mentioned the other night in 1 Peter 2, men, when I said that one of the things that kept Jesus from Dealing insult for insult is that he kept handing that over to God. Listen, when you hand over to God and and you say, God, it's your business to vindicate me. God, it's your job to give me the honor and the glory that's supposed to come to me. When you hand that over to God, it takes the monkey off your back of having to get even with other people. And that liberates your soul to love your enemies and to have compassion on them. Why? Why? You can pray for their salvation knowing that if God doesn't grant repentance, he'll settle the score at the day of judgment. That's one of the most freeing realities you can ever learn, not to have to live always trying to defend your honor and glory. Give it to God. He'll do a lot better job than you can. And as you begin to value the glory and honor of God as Christ did by grace, you will find that your emotional responses won't have to be pre-programmed they'll begin to naturally become more like Jesus as you see them in the Gospels. But not only did our Lord's balanced emotional life flow out of a heart that valued God's honor and glory, his balanced emotional life also naturally flowed out of the pure motive of valuing the good of others. The pure motive of valuing the good of others. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3 for a moment. Mark chapter 3. This is another one of those interesting mixtures and blends we see in Jesus that we talked about this morning. This is one of those texts where Jesus is embroiled in a controversy about uh, Sabbath-keeping with the Pharisees who had greatly perverted God's original design. And uh, these texts are not about Jesus versus Moses because then that would mean that the Pharisees' silly rules represented God's rules in the Old Testament. It's not true. He's trying to give people back the original intent that God gave at creation, and and he's involved in that controversy. And we read this in verses one to five. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, "Get up and come forward." And he said to them. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And what I'm interested in here is what Mark tells us about Jesus looking on these Pharisees with anger. It must have registered on his face Or at least in his eyes. You can tell someone when someone's displeased often as they look at you with their eyes and their facial expressions. That must have been the case here and why it's recorded. But I want you to notice that it says that Jesus looked on them with anger being grieved at their hardness of heart. That word grieved is a type of sorrow. A type of being distressed. And it can be often, it can be associated with anger. But, it, but, it's not, but it's also distinct from anger to some degree. So Jesus is feeling sorrow and he's feeling anger directed at the Pharisees. He's angry with them and he's also grieved with them. And the Bible says here he was grieved because of their hardness of heart. And their hardness of heart could be was demonstrated here how? By their lack of care for this man with a withered hand. Their hardness of heart was part and parcel of their perverted application of the Sabbath. One of the reasons they perverted the Sabbath is they didn't know God. They did not know the compassionate and loving heart of God. So they turned it into a heavy burden. Now B.B. Warfield interprets this as Jesus being grieved over their hardness of heart because of what it meant for the man with the withered hand and others like him. In other words, Jesus was grieved at how they were oppressing this man and others like him. And therefore, he was expressing anger and he was hurting and he was grieved because of the terrible oppression that was taking place. In other words, he was grieving at man's inhumanity to man. That was connected to his anger. Others interpret this to mean that Jesus was grieved over the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. He was grieved at how sin could so harden the hearts of people, rendering them in such a case as to be so unfeeling toward others. If that's the right interpretation, then not only was Jesus angry at the Pharisees, then he was also genuinely concerned for their souls as they were headed But whichever the right interpretation is, or maybe it's both, clearly this is a mixture of emotion, anger and grief flowing from Jesus' heart. But either interpretation, it comes down to this. Jesus was angry and he was grieved because his heart was set on the good of others. Do you see that? Jesus didn't, this wasn't robotic. He didn't practice it before he showed up. I need to show anger and I need to be grieved. It happened automatically, reflex reaction of a heart that cared about other people. If I have a heart that loves other people and I value their good, I will be sensitive to and grieve over their spiritual condition. And if I have a heart that loves other people and values their good, I will grieve when I see people oppressed and suffering at the hands of others. That's just going to happen automatically from my heart. And at times, as we see here, my love for others and my concern for them can be mixed with expressions of anger. The overall point, holy mixtures like these flow out of valuing other people, valuing other people. And that needs to be cultivated. Now, brethren, one of the things this tells us is that if we're going to cultivate Christ-like emotions, then when addressing sinful emotional responses, we must not get caught in the trap of only confessing the fruit and not going after the root. You know what I mean by that? The fruit is the sinful emotional response. Now, what's going to happen if all you ever do is say, Lord, please forgive me of the hair trigger. Now, will he forgive you? Yes. Lord, please forgive me of that sudden outburst of anger. I know that's wrong. Your Bible, the Bible says that that's sinful. He will forgive you, but you know what? If you never go past that and get to the root, it's going to keep coming back. Why? Because you're not dealing with what's feeding it. What's feeding it is a heart that is attached to your own honor and glory. And if you're going to have dealings with God and have this cleansed out of your heart, you've got to bring that out into the light and bring that to the blood of Jesus. And that's much more humbling, isn't it? I mean, it's humbling to say, Lord, I got a hair trigger. Please forgive me. But it's much more humbling to go to God, the God that you love, and say, Lord, I still have this tendency, very strong in my heart, to be committed to the glory and honor of Jeff Johnson. That's much more humbling. It's much uglier. But you know what? It is much more freeing when you do that. Because you're getting to the root or when you say, Lord, why is it that I'm so in, why is it that I, I should be more burdened for sinners? And, and why is it that, Lord, please forgive me for not being uh, righteously angry and upset when your name is dishonored and you confess it a thousand times and he'll forgive you a thousand times. But you've got to do the harder work of saying, Lord, please forgive me for a morally insensitive heart. And work grace in my soul. Put in me what is not there that I can't put there by my own power or might. Place in my soul what I saw in my Lord Jesus a heart that is pulsating with love for your glory. Give me the grace to hand over my honor in your hands. You've got to do that work down beneath the surface. This is all about dealing with the heart. All about the heart. And I hope that's become clear in all the messages that we keep going after the inner man because that's where that work must be done, by the Spirit. Let me just give you an example in my own life of how this has had to take place and I haven't conquered this yet. Let me just be blunt with you or open with you about my own weakness. This study has helped me to realize that I have a tendency to reduce Christlikeness to niceness. say, well, what's wrong with being nice? (laughs) I like nice people, don't you? I mean, like, what's the alternative? (laughs) What else would you want to be? And I don't mind having a reputation of being a nice person. I think I've got that reputation, unless people are lying to me or they really don't like me that much and they're too nice to tell me. (laughs) But this study, one of the things that it has brought me to realize is that Christ's likeness cannot be reduced to niceness. You know why? Because niceness can be just a form of selfishness. Here's what I mean. To never show any negative emotion, such as anger or displeasure, can be a form of selfishness. Be- because, and, and, and not ever being grieved in my heart. and 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 not showing that because I want to be nice. That's actually a form of selfishness. Because here's what I have found. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. He well, so that's nice. It's selfish. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable because it makes me feel uncomfortable to make you uncomfortable. And you know what? If you love people, sometimes you are got to make them feel uncomfortable. Sometimes you've got to say things. I don't mean always with anger or displeasure. But you have to deal with people sometimes in ways that are not really that nice. And sometimes niceness is just a way to cover up not having to deal with something because you don't really love that person enough to do it. I'm loving myself so much that quite frankly, I don't want the trouble of having to deal with it. So I cover it with niceness. Oh, isn't he so Christ-like? You see what I'm talking about, heart-level dealings? And this is not only true when it comes to righteous displays of anger when it's warranted. Sometimes I don't want to make people sad kind of nice. It makes me think of the rich young ruler in the story over in Mark chapter 10. You know the story Mark uh, records and the other gospel writers record how this man, the rich young ruler, came to Jesus wanting to know what he must do to, to have eternal life. As I said this morning in my testimony, what a prospect, right? You don't let him get away. You get him to pray the prayer and get him in. But Jesus did not do that. He started off by saying, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Then he begins to lay out the commandments. Then notice verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, if I've kept all these things from my youth up. Now listen to this. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus loved the man enough to send him away, grieved and sad. You know what my tendency would be? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Come back. Why? Because I want to come across nice that's selfish. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want somebody to feel bad. We can have those tendencies, right? Have you ever found that true when somebody comes to you about a spiritual problem and you really know it's worse, Pastor Smith and I was talking about this earlier, you really know it's worse than what they're even telling you. Isn't there this tendency to want to pat them on the back and make it all better? You so isn't that nice? It's not nice, it's selfish. We do that because we don't want to feel uncomfortable. But you see, when you value other people, the right emotions start coming up. And and in this case, Jesus loved the man and he loved him enough to tell him the truth. I'll tell you something else that we see in our Lord that we have to think about at heart level when it comes to valuing the good of others. And this especially applies to those of us who are Calvinists, who believe in the sovereignty of God. Do you think that we can hide our lack of concern for others behind the doctrine of God's sovereignty. You remember in Matthew chapter 11 after Jesus pronounced all those woes on those cities that had rejected his light and his miracles, the Bible says he rejoiced in spirit and he says, I thank you, Father, heaven and earth, because you've hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and you've revealed them unto babes. And he begins to lay out the doctrine of divine sovereignty and how no one can see the Father unless the Son gives him the light to see him. There Jesus is clear about divine discrimination. And he, finds, he rejoices in it. Why? Because he had a heart committed to the glory of God. But yet this same Jesus, who believed in the sovereignty of God, could look over at the city of Jerusalem and weep. After a series of woes in Matthew 23, really giving it to them, knowing that it was all bound up in the sovereign purpose of God, he could end by saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen does her chicks. Jesus never said, well, you know, it's all in God's sovereignty and plan. I will build my church, and I believe in reprobation and election. It'll all work out. And so even then, we have to have heart dealings and say, Lord, help me not pervert divine sovereignty and cause me to hide my lack of concern for others behind it. Work in me that tenderness and compassion and sorrow of heart that Jesus knew. Give me the heart of the psalmist who said, Rivers of water flow down my cheeks because they don't keep your law. And you look at that text and you're saying, Why is he praying that? Because he values God's glory or he's concerned about those not keeping the law? Why do we have to choose? Because a holy heart values God's glory and values the good of others. Is this making sense? What we value brings out this balanced emotional life. And let me just add this too as a very practical application, especially when it comes to valuing the good of others. And I found this out by experience several years ago. Don't just pray for a heart to value others and their good. Actually get involved in human suffering. And if you have a new heart, God uses that to produce it. I found that out by getting involved with a, a drug addict a few years ago. And that was the first time, I, I'm not saying I got there completely, but that's the first time that I could really begin to understand what Paul meant in Romans 9 when he says I, I could find myself wishing to be a curse from Christ that they might be saved. I'm not saying I got there, but I could understand it a little better. And I thought to myself, you know, you can stay in your study and you can pray for a burden for the lost for three weeks, or you could actually go put yourself among red-blooded sinners and let the burden be developed there. It's very interesting in, in, in that text in John chapter 11 when Jesus is at Lazarus' tomb and it says he was troubled. It's actually a reflexive pronoun. He troubled himself. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, I think perhaps uh, A.W. Pink might be getting down to what it really means. Notice what he says. Listen to what he says. He says, and was troubled is more literally he troubled himself. He caused himself to be troubled by what made others weep and well, And how this groaning and troubling of himself brings out the perfections of the incarnate son, he would not raise Lazarus and till he had entered in spirit into the solemnity of the awfulness of death. Mark 8:12 intimates that the miracles which he performed cost him something. Plainer still is the testimony of Matthew 8:17, himself took our infirmities and bare our sickness. He felt the burden of sickness before he removed it. In other words, Jesus troubled himself by not closing his eyes to people's needs. He actually intentionally put himself right where human suffering was. And if we have new hearts, that's one of the ways we develop that kind of concern. We don't just live nice, quiet lives, having our devotions with our coffee and wanting no disturbance. We put ourselves where the needs are. And that's where Christ like character is developed and it is strengthened. In our hearts, Listen, be encouraged with this. The Lord Jesus wants you to be like him more than you want to be like him. He died for you before you had the slightest interest to be like him. And I know when you hear messages like these in series that they can kind of eat your lunch. I mean, they'll be encouraging, but they can kind of eat your lunch a little bit too. It's kind of like, a series on prayer. Everybody's going to walk away feeling guilty because who prays as much as they should? And I don't want you walking away discouraged. I want you to walk away knowing that if you're a Christian, Jesus is committed to working this in you. He's not working against you. You don't have to twist his arm. When you pray for grace to have a heart like his, he is pleased and he will answer that prayer. May God bless you. Let's pray. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.